Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Berosli. Today, I'm pleased to announce nominations and staff for critical foreign policy and national security positions in my administration. It's a team that will keep our country and our people safe and secure. And it's a team that reflects the fact that America is back, ready to lead the world, not retreat from it. That's the message President-elect Joe Biden plans to send to the rest of the world. But it's easier said than done. After four years of Donald Trump's foreign policy, From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. And following a shocking assault on the U.S. Capitol by a mob egged on by Donald Trump, President Franklin Roosevelt set aside December 7, 1941, as a day that will live in infamy. Unfortunately, we can now add January 6th, 2021 to that very short list of dates in American history that will live forever in infamy. Will Biden and his foreign policy team be able to restore America's global standing and the relative stability it once provided? Hi there. Hi, Corey. How are you? Here to help me answer this question is Corey Shockey. I'm so excited to talk to you, Corey. Corey is the director of foreign and defense policy at the American Enterprise Institute. She previously served on the National Security Council under President George W. Bush and in senior posts at the Pentagon and the State Department. Corey, we're recording just 24 hours after a mob of Trump supporters swarmed the U.S. Capitol smashing windows, vandalizing offices, and sending political leaders running for cover. Before we dive into the specifics of Biden's likely foreign policy, I want to ask, what impact is this failed insurrection likely to have, both on the Biden administration's ability to govern and on the world's perception of the United States? I'm really glad we're talking about this, Samira, because it feels like the most consequential moment in American domestic politics in my lifetime and is hugely damaging to the republic that a sitting president fomented a violent insurrection against the peaceful transition of power. The Trump administration has been clarifying in lots of ways about uh, the American republic and about the political culture of Americans and about our individual ethics. But yesterday was a real tragic milestone and with lots of negative consequences for what the United States looks like in the world, for what we actually are at this moment, and for the importance of our common work to be better than this. I think in a strange way, it may actually make easier the governance challenges of the new administration because the behavior of the president and his supporters is so flagrantly unconstitutional, so incredibly dangerous, and so clear that, you know, we don't have to have conversations about how do we solve these people's problems? We have to have conversations about why didn't law enforcement treat them the same way it treated 
Black Lives Matter protesters and other protesters. What is the FBI doing to track down and prosecute uh, the people who committed this aggression against the constitutional order in the United States? So I think it will be very clarifying and make less necessary the redressing of whatever legitimate grievances may have been behind the indefensible behavior of those Americans yesterday. Well, you're certainly putting a positive spin on it, but it's certainly challenging to launch not only an administration, but a new foreign policy in, in light of the events on the U.S. Capitol. And so I want to take a look at the team that Biden has assembled to lead this effort. His pick for Secretary of State is his longtime foreign policy advisor, Anthony Blinken, who served as Deputy Secretary of State under President Obama. How would you describe Blinken's approach to foreign policy? Well, I think he's careful, he's cautious, he's reticent about the use of military force. He believes, as President-elect Biden does, that we have been too quick to make military force a leading component of our foreign policy. And that's a criticism I agree with. So I think you will see two important recalibrations. The first, the rejection of the worldview that America first and state sovereignty is the most important element of international behavior. I think that will be thrown overboard and good for the country that it will be. And second, that you will see a lot more emphasis on the and non-military elements of American foreign policy, of diplomatic negotiations, of the possibility of cooperation to uh, redress problems before they take on an urgency that would require the use of military force. And I think those calibrations actually serve our political moment domestically and internationally quite well. But transforming America's relationship with the rest of the world is only part of the challenge Blinken faces. He must also revitalize the State Department itself after four years of attacks by the Trump administration. Trump's first Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, initially froze hiring and tried to reorganize the department. As Secretary, I will deploy the talent and resources of the State Department in the most efficient ways possible. That may entail making some changes to how things are traditionally done in this department. Trump's second Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, defended the Trump administration's proposal to cut the State Department's budget by nearly 25 percent. This budget request will help us achieve our diplomatic goals in several ways. First, we'll make sure that China and Russia cannot gain a strategic advantage in an era of renewed great power competition. It is a move that lawmakers said would threaten national security. If we were to accept cuts of the magnitude proposed, it would, uh, would make our nation less safe, make it harder to achieve the effectiveness we all seek. These actions made it difficult for diplomats to do their jobs, devastated morale, and hampered recruitment efforts. But according to Corey, the State Department has been weak for decades. Beyond shifting America's foreign policy approach, Blinken will also have to revitalize the State Department from within. 
And that's not just because of Donald Trump. What are the biggest weaknesses that must be addressed if the department is to execute an effective foreign policy? Oh, I love this question. It's a problem that has animated me for some time because I went to work in a military staff early on in my professional career. And one of the things I learned and loved working in Colin Powell's joint staff was understanding that what the American military is actually brilliant at is they're great teachers because their talent pool is the middle of the bell curve for the most part. And so the, they institutionally array themselves to be clear about what are the skills that make someone successful in this profession? How do we nurture those skills, better train and refine those skills, incentivize and reward those skills? And when I went to work in the State Department as the deputy in policy planning, I was so hugely impressed with the great talent of the foreign and civil service in the Department of State and shocked and disappointed at what a poor job the institution does in managing its talent and being clear about what are the skills and how do we refine and train and teach and incentivize and reward them. And so I think the talent management challenge in the Department of State is really urgent. And to get to that talent management, to better manage its talent, requires a cultural shift. The model of professional development in the American diplomatic service is entirely mentoring. You know, after your initial education as a foreign service officer, there's nothing else required in in professional development other than language. If we, instead of making our diplomats generalists, celebrated them being experts, because you know, a model that relies entirely on mentorship is inherently unfair. We all naturally have a tendency to choose people like us. So it replicates the existing leadership rather than encompasses a broader range of choice and gives a broader range of opportunity to people who are different than the existing coterie. But I think the challenge goes beyond the issue of mentorship that you mentioned. I personally worked at the State Department. Um, I was a political appointee. My parents are immigrants from Turkey, and I am a Turkish speaker. And I have to say, I encountered a lot of suspicion about my loyalty whether I would be loyal to the U.S. government or whether I would be loyal to Turkey. I'm so glad you shared that experience, Elmira, because I think it is generalizable. The reason that the State Department has generalists, not specialists, is precisely the reason you just mentioned, which is a fundamental distrust of its own best talent. Right? If you think the problem is, how do I keep American diplomats loyal to the United States of America? Then you need to fix that problem, not design a whole system that prevents it happening. Many have applauded Biden's nomination of Blinken. 
but his pick to lead the Department of Defense, General Lloyd Austin, is more controversial. Retired General Lloyd Austin has served in the U.S. military for four decades, rising from West Point graduate to leader of U.S. Central Command. From 2013 to 2016, Austin led the U.S. Central Command, which oversees U.S. military operations in the Middle East. Many credit him with creating the strategy that eventually led to the military defeat of the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. General Austin was a diplomat. It was not an easy task. He built relationships with our Iraqi counterparts and with our coalition partners. But Austin has also come under fire for decisions he made while leading CENTCOM. It was supposed to be the showcase of the U.S. effort in Syria, a $500 million program to train 3,000 rebels this year alone. Well, we certainly, at the pace we're going, we won't, uh, won't reach the, uh, the goal that we had uh, initially established for ourselves. Austin also acknowledging his own intelligence director under investigation for altering intelligence reports. Words like slow, stalled, and retreat changed to deliberate and relocated, which had the effect of painting a rosier picture in final reports delivered to General Austin and his staff. And there's another problem. Because Austin left the Army less than seven years ago, he isn't eligible to run the Pentagon under current federal law, and that means he'll need a congressional waiver. I recognize that being a member of the president's cabinet requires a different perspective and unique responsibilities from a career in uniform. And I intend to keep this at the forefront of my mind. Let's turn to the Department of Defense. General Lloyd Austin ended his military service just four years ago after 41 years in uniform. Many have opposed granting him a congressional waiver noting that civilian control of the military is vital to a stable democracy. What qualities in a secretary of defense then are more important than military experience? A lot of them. So I would answer this in three parts, Almera. First, to directly answer your question, political experience matters, right? Because the most important thing to understand about the secretary of defense is that she or he has a board of directors of everybody who's a member of Congress. Having the political skill of understanding where's the trade space? What do people who are getting elected need? And how do I find a way to set them up so that they get to be heroes when they do the right thing instead of building a system where they have to be heroes in order to do the right thing? One of my favorite commentaries on strategy comes from a, a veteran and a defense analyst by the name of Andrew Exum, who said of our counterinsurgency strategy that any strategy that requires people to be geniuses is a failed strategy. And my counterpart to that is that any uh, strategy that requires members of Congress to cast heroically brave votes over and over is a failed strategy. And so dealing with Congress is one of the most important things a secretary does. So good political skills. Second, good communication skills, because explaining to the American people why we are putting daughters and sons in harm's way is really important for building the broad base of public support 
we ought to have and deserve to have when we are fighting anywhere in the world. The third thing is the sensibilities to understand when to do nothing. You know, the American military has an admirable, let's fix this problem approach, which very often leads to them being the hammer that gets selected and sitting back and not offering to solve the problem when the military isn't the optimal tool takes restraint. And that's a good quality for a secretary to have in understanding when do I want to cry havoc and let loose the dogs of war? And when do I want to say, I don't think we're the answer to this. All of those are important civilian skills. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing, second comment I have is that when President-elect Biden made his case in print in the Atlantic for Lloyd Austin's nomination, he identified three things he thought were important, vaccine distribution and a couple of others. None of them were actually about fighting and winning the nation's wars. There are a lot of Americans who are good at logistics the kinds of things that get vaccine distribution. Nominate Jeff Bezos. Nominate somebody who's run the post office. It's bad for civil military relations in America to assume that only the military has these kinds of skills and to narrow the focus for selection for a cabinet appointment to just a couple of people. You know, three, we're a country of 335 million people. There are a lot of people who are good at these skills. And I think it's disappointing and I hope not reflective of what President-elect Biden and the people closest to him think about defense policy, that they think only someone with military experience has those qualifications because it's flat not true. And the third thing I would say is that I'm sensitive to and supportive of the rationale that we're long overdue to see in the senior ranks of our country, men and women who reflect the diversity of our country. That's important to us all. But Lloyd Austin's not the only black man in America who could be the Secretary of Defense. And we shouldn't um, violate the norm of civil military relations in order to support another good, which is ensuring that we have greater diversity in the highest levels of our government. There are other ways to do this besides nominating somebody who's recently uh, been on active duty, because somebody who's recently been on active duty doesn't have these other skills that are important. We'll be right back. If you're a regular listener to Opinion Has It, you may find yourself asking, how can you help support the work we do here on the podcast? Honestly, the best way is to become a subscriber at Project Syndicate. For less than $2 a week, not only can you help us continue to interview experts week after week, but also join a community that's committed to a crucial public good, a truly open world of ideas. Visit project-syndicate.org to learn more.
Now that we have a better understanding of Biden's team, let's consider how they are likely to handle a major foreign policy challenge, namely China. Where has the Trump administration left the U.S. on this front? Well, I think the Trump administration did good service to the country by making clear that we needed to adapt our approach to China based on China's malevolent behavior, both their human rights abuses domestically, the internment of over a million Uyghur in re-education camps, the extension of the national security law in violation of the treaty commitment they'd made when Hong Kong was transferred uh, to Chinese control, and internationally, the aggressiveness that China has shown in um, disputed waters, their refusal to accept the International Tribunal in The Hague's judgment in favor of the Philippines in that regard, right? Like China's behavior is what has changed American thinking, which started out in a very positive place and pursued it perhaps longer than we should have in support that China could become a responsible stakeholder in the international order. So China's responsible for what's changing. And the Trump administration did a good job in identifying that. But I think they did a poor job in aligning our efforts to achieve that difference. And there, I have a lot of hope that the, that the Biden administration will do a much better job. China is one of the few areas where there is some bipartisan consensus in the United States. That's especially true when it comes to trade. Both Democrats and Republicans are adamant about forcing China to change its practices, particularly with regard to intellectual property. Where they disagree is tactics. Trump operated largely unilaterally, forcing allies and partners to fall in line, or else. Huawei, the world's leading manufacturer of 5G network gear, a U.S. campaign seeks to have allies around the world dump the supplier for security reasons. Europe has become the focal point of that campaign. The British government will ban Huawei from having any role in providing technology for its 5G networks from 2027 on, with the company barred from providing any new equipment from the end of this year. It's a major U-turn after the Prime Minister said in January that the firm could be allowed a limited role in the new era of faster technology. The UK was under strong pressure from the USA to take the decision, and President Trump has taken credit for persuading, in his words, many countries to adopt the same approach. Corey says this approach has weakened America's position considerably, and Biden agrees. We're going after China in the wrong way. China is stealing intellectual property. China is conditioning being able to do business in China based on whether or not you have 51% Chinese ownership. That's got to end. And what we have done is we have disarmed ourselves. We make up 25% of the world's economy, but we poked our finger in the eye of all of our allies out there. Biden wants to take a diplomacy-first approach, working with allies to compel China to follow global trading rules. But the U.S. has spent the last four years alienating allies and partners. Meanwhile, China has been deepening its trade and investment relationships with them. The European Union has struck a controversial investment deal with China. The EU has hailed the accord, saying it will give European companies better access to Chinese markets. The EU agreed to the new investment deal despite objections from Biden's foreign policy team. Given these developments, can Biden form a coalition that is strong enough to compel China to change its behavior? 
Oh, absolutely. But you're going to have to probably be willing to pay a price for it. For example, Germany drove the EU decision on the investment treaty with China. And that puts the Biden administration in the position of both wanting to repair relations with Germany, but aligning Germany on China is going to require drawing the German public's attention to the fact that Volkswagen built a major plant in a part of China where a million Uyghur are in concentration camps. And that's going to impose an economic price on the German economy, and it's going to shame the German government as it should. But that's going to make repairing relations with Germany more difficult. And beyond trade, China's territorial aggression is starting to be a growing source of tension with its neighboring states, as well as the United States. Do you think Biden's diplomacy first approach can address it? And what defense risks do you see? Oh, that's a great question. So yes, I think a policy of leading with non-military tools can be successful in dealing with this China. Moreover, I think it's more likely to be successful because it will make it easier for other countries to cooperate with us. They may be fearful of aligning militarily with the United States, initially. But if you look, for example, at how India is moving to allow military cooperation through the Quad with Japan, Australia, and the United States, it's indicative of how seriously the Indians take the threat China is posing to their security. So I think starting with diplomatic and economic and intelligence cooperation, starting with supporting the rule of law in international organizations, supporting each other's candidates for leadership in those organizations. That is the place to start getting the patterns of cooperation established. And I think the Biden administration will be great at that. The other thing I would say is that, you know, our Concerns about China are predicated on a belief that China is stampeding towards greater prosperity and influence. And that may not be true. I'm really struck recently by the important work done by two of my AEI colleagues, three of my AEI colleagues, actually. The economist Derek Scissors, who has done fabulous work showing the way that Chinese are manipulating and misrepresenting their economic situation. And the work of Michael Beckley, who's a professor at Tufts, who looks at the upstream indicators of Chinese GDP growth, like available water, productivity. And his work shows that it's very costly to create productivity. And that suggests that China's economy may already be stalling. And third is Hal Brands, the Johns Hopkins professor, who's worked with Michael Beckley to look at what the security implications would be of a China that is beginning to fail. And all three of their work has led me to think maybe we're overestimating the problems of a successful China, and we are maybe underestimating the problems of a failing China. 
Of course, the challenge posed by China is just the beginning. From curbing Iran's nuclear ambitions, Iran says it now plans to increase its uranium production, to withdrawing troops from Iraq and Afghanistan. By mid-January, the deployment will be cut to two and a half thousand soldiers in each country, to responding to a large-scale cyber attack by suspected Russian hackers. Dozens of U.S. networks breached, including Treasury, State, Homeland Security, and the Department of Energy. The Biden administration has a packed foreign policy agenda, but Corey says that in order to be successful. It will first need to address domestic challenges. I think the Biden administration has already identified the right priorities. First and foremost, getting the pandemic under control, both domestically in the United States, we're tragically killing so many Americans through government incompetence. Fixing that. Is the paramount priority, and then helping other countries fix it for themselves or fix it、uh, for us all through good international cooperation. I think that's exactly the right priority. The second priority: restoring America's alliance relationships, because that's a precursor to the other important problems like. Getting a handle on climate change and managing a rising China. A third priority, which I don't think they have identified, but I would encourage them to, is North American consolidation, politically, economically, and socially. The basis for competing with China for the United States can't just be Americans. And we have such a natural advantage, having fabulous neighbors like Mexico and Canada, and building on the NAFTA foundation to expand trade, which the Trump administration did some good in creating a expanding trade basis, but they did it in such a mean spirited way that there's there are repairs that need to be done there, but also. How about creating a common energy grid for North America, a common immigration policy for North America, so that Canada and the United States get the labor that we need, high skilled and low skilled, from our closest friend and neighbor in Mexico, and we help solve some of the problems of crime and drug cartels that our own populations are feeding in Mexico. So I think there's a lot of work to be done there, and I'd love to see that become a priority for the Biden administration. More fundamentally, you've argued that the United States must restore its global leadership, particularly because of China's growing influence. Why is that so vital, and how can the Biden administration achieve it, especially in light of the recent assault on the Capitol? President Trump and his Uh, supporters have propagated a number of dangerous fictions, like that the election wasn't free and fair, and that he lost it freely and fairly. Another of the dangerous falsehoods they have propagated is that America's alliance relationships are exploitative; that our allies don't do their fair share, and that we're weaker because of it. And that is nonsense. The international order that the United States and its friends created 
is the key to our security and the key to our prosperity because democratic nations are safer partners that consistently honor their obligations to a much greater degree than authoritarian governments do. They follow the rules of free trade and they have domestically the sources of both adaptation and legitimacy that all of us can work together to solve common problems. That's why it's so important for us to repair America's image in the world, because if we don't, our safety and our prosperity will come under greater pressure over time. Corey, thank you so much. It was a great pleasure, Amira. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to have the conversation. And thank you for the good work you and your team do with this podcast. That was Corey Shockey, Director of Foreign and Defense Policy at the American Enterprise Institute. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. You can also follow us on Twitter by searching for at prosyn. That's P-R-O-S-Y-N. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brasalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Whitney Arana and Jonathan Stein. <laughs>